be seated this morning. We have been in the midst of this series of messages called Embrace the Turtle. And if this is your first week here, it's a little strange bit of title for a message, a series of messages uh, in a church. And so here's the explanation behind it. We've talked about over the last few weeks how we need to embrace those slow and steady habits that develop us into the people that God has called us to be. That we need to be about the slow and steady pace of developing our lives as we follow Christ Jesus. And just as the turtle won the race over the rabbit, over the hare, because he was slow and steady and didn't stop, that that's what we are called to do. And specifically, we're talking about developing the habits that help us to become the people that God intends for us to be. That we've talked about two weeks ago, scripture and memorizing scripture. I've challenged our church by Easter to memorize a chapter of scripture. And so that gave us 90 days from the beginning. The later you get started, the less days you have. Some of you I know are procrastinators out there, all right? The days are ticking away, all right? So I've challenged our church to memorize a chapter of Scripture. I just gave them two parameters. One is Psalm 117 is off limits because it's just a couple of verses. And then Psalm 119 is off limits because it's a lot of verses. And so somewhere find a chapter. It's been fun for me to hear chapters that people are memorizing, things that people are doing. So I'm excited about that. And then after we, we talked about memorizing Scripture, we talked about meditating on it, thinking about it, dwelling in it, letting God's Word soak into our lives. And then last week we talked about prayer. And specifically we talked about this idea that prayer is us exchanging what we desire, our agendas, our wants, for what God desires and God's agenda and God's wants. That we walk to Him, we go to Him in prayer to say, God, this is what I am giving to you. I don't have to have this. I don't need to go that way. What is it that you desire for me? And we looked at Jesus' life, how in prayer He was constantly saying, not my will, but yours. So we've built that over the last couple of weeks. And then today we're going to look at another habit that we must form in our lives if we're going to become the people that God intends for us to be because it's at the very heart of who God is. And if it's at the heart of who God is, it ought to be something that we have as part of our lives. You've got your Bibles. We're going to start in Philippians chapter 3 and then we're going to go back into John. But if you've got your Bibles, go to Philippians chapter 3. It'll take us a minute to get there. But I want you to remember a couple of things as we've been talking through this this series. We've used two images through the whole series. And I stole these from, uh, I told you this, from Louis Giglio down in Atlanta, Georgia. And I just love the visual imagery that is here. And the first image is of a pinata. And that for a lot of us, this is how we live our lives, or at least this is how the culture exists. It's like a pinata. It's colorful. It's vibrant. It looks pretty. But it's hollow in the inside. And when it is filled, it's filled with just sugary stuff. And so we go from one extreme to another and one high to another and constantly looking for the next bit of information, the next feel good, the next moment that will help us. And we live our lives constantly fragile, constantly hollow, filling ourselves with sugary stuff. The other image we've said, or we can be an iceberg. And the idea that we had there is that an iceberg is beautiful on top. It is a beautiful piece of God's creation. But underneath, it is substantive. It is deep. It has got a real depth to it. And the desire of my life, and I think the desire of your life, is that we would be a people of depth. 
And in order to do that, we have to develop the habits in our lives. Now, the reason we do these habits, some call them spiritual disciplines. We kind of call them habits. Some, uh, I said some, a couple of weeks ago, somebody called them spiritual delights just to make them sound fun. All right. But the reason we do this is not just to check things off and say, man, look how spiritual I am. Man, I read my Bible seven days this week. I must be a good Christian this week. The idea is threefold. First of all, we want to know Jesus better. Secondly, we want to put ourselves, and God has ordained certain things, that he will send his blessings, that he will give his honor, that he will give grace in the midst of, that we will learn about him, we will know more about him, we will be saved from temptation in the midst of him. So we want to place ourselves doing those things that put us in the pathway of grace. And then thirdly, we want to grow in godliness. And in the midst of it all, we've talked about the power of habits in our lives to change who we are and what we're becoming. And so there, I found a quote this week. I started reading a book this week. It was on my desk um, and underneath a couple of things. And I know this will shock some of you. My desk is not always the tidiest. Okay. And underneath a couple of things was this book that I had bought originally to use, I think, in this series, but had forgot I had it. And it's called The Power of Habit. That seems like a good thing to read when you're doing a series on habits. So I started to read it, and there was this quote that struck me, and then a story I'll tell you. So this is from 1892, William James. He says, all our life, so far it is as definite form, is but a mass of habits. All of our life is a mass of habits. So as we're talking about embracing the turtle, what we're talking about is embracing these slow and steady habits that build us into who we are. And they can make a drastic change in our lives. The book tells a story of a woman named Lisa Allen. And Lisa Allen has become one of the most uh, interesting subjects of exploration by scientists and brain uh, scientists especially, neuroscientists. You see, Lisa Allen spent most of her life living a very difficult life. She's 34 years old, sitting before this group of researchers, telling the story of the fact that she was 16 years old. She started smoking and drinking. That she had struggled almost her entire life with obesity. That in her mid-twenties, she had uh, credit card debt over $10,000 with collection agencies calling us. And she had never held a job for longer than one year at a time. So by the time she was in her late twenties, she was an overweight smoker heavy drinker, borderline alcoholic, who was $10,000 in debt, terrible at relationships, and couldn't keep a job. But at 34, she stood before the researchers a completely different woman. She looked 10 years younger than the pictures they'd been given of her when she first began to go to them. She looked lean and vibrant. She had the legs of a runner. She... um, had no outstanding debts on her record. She didn't drink anymore. And she had spent the last 39 months employed by the same organization in graphic design. The researchers asked questions to probe. And the lead researcher had brought people in every time that were new. And so he would rehearse some of the same questions. Like, when was the last time you had a cigarette? And she said, it's been four years. Well, tell us what's happened in those four years since you no longer had a cigarette. She said, well, since I gave up cigarettes, I have lost 60 pounds. I've run a marathon. I've got completely out of debt and found myself a stable job. Well, tell the people, how did that happen? How did you suddenly change your life? How did you go from a late 20s, overweight, alcoholic, cigarette smoking, deep in debt, terrible at relationships, can't keep a job, to someone who looks fit, fit 
and lean, who's lost 60 pounds, who doesn't smoke or drink, and has been in the same job now for 39 months. And she said it all started on a vacation to Cairo. She said what led to the vacation at Cairo was this. She said, I came home from work one day and I was sitting at the table with my husband and my husband looked at me over the dinner table and said, I found somebody else. I'm leaving you. And he walked out the door and she said, my life should have known something was wrong then, but it didn't. I began to stalk he and the lady he was now with. And so I would go and stalk them on a regular basis to the point that one night I showed up drunken at their door, knocking on it incessantly till they called the cops to come get me. And she said, I just got to get away. So she said, I flew as far as I could think to get away, Cairo, Egypt. And she said, I remember waking up in Cairo, Egypt, in a hotel room. The morning uh, bells for prayer were ringing. She said, my head was throbbing. I was coming down off of, of a high of some sort. And I reached over and thought, I've got to have a cigarette first thing when I wake up. She said, I lit it. And a moment later, I realized I smelled burning plastic. And she said, I was so desperate in that moment for a cigarette I had lit the pen next to the table on fire. And she said, I decided right then my life was going to change. And she said, I'm in Cairo, Egypt. She said, I'm going to promise myself within a couple of years, I'm going to come back to this place and I'm going to trek the desert as a different woman. And the researcher said, really, really? So what did you do? What did you do to get to that point? And she said, I changed one habit. I stopped smoking. And she said, when I stopped smoking, I suddenly felt better about myself. And when I stopped smoking, I then went to stop drinking. And then I went to eating healthy. And then I went to running and exercising. And she has gone back and gone through the desert. She has run a marathon. She has completely transformed her life. Now, here's what's interesting, okay? So the researchers have her there, not just for her story. They've been studying her brain. And as they study her brain, they say that now, compared to where you were four years ago, we see that when your brain lights up in one area, like when we mention food or we mention something that you would want, the same area of desire lights up in your brain on the scans. And so it's still there. The desire is still there. They said, but what's interesting is every time you come back, another part of your brain seems to light up more and more with every scan. And so we will mention food, your favorite kind of food, and that part of your brain that thinks about that gets excited about that lights up but then another part has begun to light up more and even overpower it and that is the place that we think self-control lies in your brain and they said to her changing one habit in your life significantly altered the course of your existence so here's my thing i believe that god intends for us to become People who are followers of Jesus Christ, who live for his glory here and now, who live with an eye to the future, but with a heart for the people that are here. And in order to become those people, we have to assess everything that's happening in our lives and determine what is it that is going to be the slow and steady habits of our lives that are going to help us become those people. And so two weeks ago, we talked about scripture reading and memorization and meditation. Last week, we talked about prayer. And today, we're going to talk about one that directly attacks the most harmful sin that is in each and every one of our lives. No matter how it manifests itself, no matter what it looks like for you, that there is this sin in your life that is the most detrimental to you, the hardest to overcome. And what we're going to talk about today as a habit will help you overcome that. The sin is pride. 
And it's been there since Genesis chapter 3 from the very beginning. Remember the serpent says, God doesn't want you to eat that fruit. Because when you eat that fruit, you're going to know good and evil. And you will what? Be like God. And they said, that's what we want. We want to be like God. So they took it. And then when God comes, they're ashamed because their pride has overtaken them. And what happens in our lives is we allow pride to scrunch into our life, to get into our life. And it works out the things that God wants to do. It shows itself in things like vanity, our preoccupation with our appearance, our image, or what people think of us. We've talked about this before. How do you know what a good picture is? Like if you see a good picture, how do you know it's good or not? Well, if you're not in it, you look at all the aspects of the picture to determine it. If you're in it, how do you determine if it's a good picture? The way you look, right? Like, I mean, you know, you take a family picture and, you know, when I, this is one of those back in the old days, nostalgic moments. When I was growing up, you took pictures not knowing what the results were going to be. Right? You had to go to the Walmart or Walgreens or your local photo. You remember they used to have photo stores? Y'all remember that? And you'd put it in and you'd have to, sometimes you wait three or four days, the roll of film would come back and then you get the pictures and you go through the pictures and it goes, oh, ooh, ooh, what happened there, right? Today, we know immediately, right? So family picture days take longer now than they used to, right? Because you take a picture and then what do you do? Well, let me see. Let me see. Let me look what this looks like. And you can have, let's just say you have six people in your family. Let's just do that. Two, two parents and four kids, all right? Ages, I don't know, four to 13, all right? And so you take a picture of your family and you all look and you're like, oh, they're looking, they're looking. Oh, I don't like the way I smile. And we need another one. We need another one, right? Like it's analyzed based on you. It's vanity. Pride shows itself in being stubborn. Anybody here know a stubborn person? Don't don't point, please. Anybody know? Anybody here admit you're a stubborn person? Like I am not going to admit that. Yes, you are. All right. Perpetually defend yourself. You're defensive. When somebody says you're wrong, you immediately put that guard up and go, no, uh-uh. Right? Exclude people. Pride destroys our capacity to love. So the habit we're going to talk about today, straight from Scripture, is one that attacks the centrality of pride in our life. Look at Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Now, we're going to come back to this particular verse because there's an interesting dynamic with translation right here in the middle that I want to talk about that helps us to see this a little bit better. But the idea here, the big idea is, most of you have heard this before. Many of you have been to church at all. You've read Philippians 2. Many of you have looked at Philippians 2 or thought about Philippians 2 in the last month. Even though it's just been the start of the year, you've already had this in your mind in the year. Some of you have even thought about it or looked at it or read it this week. It's one of the most popular passages of Scripture to look at. It's considered one of the earliest hymns, songs of the early church written about the time of Paul writing the Philippians would have been this hymn that was circulating among the churches about who Jesus is. And it reminds us in the midst of it that in the very essence of who he is, he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Verse 7. Instead... He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, 
taking on the likeness of humanity. And we had come as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Who became a servant. Taking on the likeness of humanity. And humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. I put this new, uh, different translation up on the screen because I love the way this particular verse says it. Now, this is from a guy that looks at the Greek and tries to really get down to it, and I won't bore you with all the details of that, but just so you know, there's a word right in this area of the Greek verse that can be translated dependent upon the context, what surrounds it. It can be translated four or five different ways. And what I love about what he does is he sets this in context of who Christ is and who God is. And some people say in spite of the fact that he was God or in deference to the fact that he was God. But I think a better translation is this, that we are to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who precisely because he was in very nature God. There's a difference between in spite of being God became a servant and precisely because he was in the nature of God became a servant. You see, what we see in this passage, at the essence of who God is, at the essence of who Jesus is, at the very nature of who they are, is the fact that they are servants. People who willingly serve those who are less than them and less deserving and don't really have any right to demand it. There is within our God, there is within our Savior, the essence of who they are is being a servant. If we're going to follow Jesus Christ, if we're going to be more like him, if we're going to get to know him better, if we're going to grow in godliness, if we're going to put ourselves on the path of grace, then we have to be people who are willing to serve. And each week we have tried to tie whatever the habit is that we're doing back to Jesus and to watch him demonstrate it. And there are multiple places in Scripture where we could talk about Him and the way that He served and then ask ourselves the questions about how we should serve in the middle of it. But there is no better place than John 13. This won't be on the screen, so if you've got your Bibles or your apps on your phone, turn to John chapter 13. Again, it's going to be a familiar passage of Scripture, but I want us to look at it. And I want us to think about three ways in particular. That Christ asks us to do some things, some practical steps. Did I say three? Let's just make it five. How about that? John chapter 13. I was being way too Baptist there. I was only going to have three points. I got five, all right? John chapter 13. Listen to it. If you don't have a Bible, just, just listen. It's a narrative passage. It's a story. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Now, let's just give a setting for a moment of where we are here. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. It's the Passover festival time, and he knows his time is coming. Jesus knew his hour was here. He knew that it was time to go away from the world. He knew that it was time for his ultimate fulfillment of what God had called him to do to happen. 
And so we can't just watch this, read this, think about this in some kind of vacuum that is unaware of the situation around him. This is one of the most important moments in the history of the world. And Jesus' agenda is to get to the place where he is going to give his life for you and for me and for the world. And yet it says there, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given him everything to his hands, that he had come from God, that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around him. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't really realize now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter says, you're never going to wash my feet, Jesus. Jesus said, if I don't wash, you have no part with me. And Peter said, Lord, then don't just wash my feet, but my hands and my head. And Jesus says, one who is bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet. He is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. And this is why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you knew these things, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Story here is of Jesus, confident in who he is, confident in what's about to happen, prepared for what's going to happen in the next few hours, prepares what's going to happen in the next few days, prepares himself by serving the people he was around. I love particularly verse 3. Chapter 13, verse 3 says, Jesus knew, the word there means with absolute certainty, that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. The idea there is Jesus was absolutely certain of whose he was, of where he had come from, and where he was going. And the reason he was willing to serve is because it wasn't going to affect his position, his place, his standing, his reputation in the least because he is secure in the fact that he is God's. And the reason that you and I can serve without fear is because we know that we have come from the Father. We know that the Father has paid for our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. We have accepted that we are saved, and by that we are assured of a future with him. And so our service here is not going to determine who we are. We are confident that we are his. But I want you to notice five things that help us to understand what it means to be the lifestyle of a servant. And here's the thing. When I talk about service, I know the first thing most of you think about is, where can I go help with a soup kitchen on Saturday? Or help with food pantry here? Or how can I help in Lynch, Kentucky? Or how can I help down at Mason's? Or how can we go to Los Angeles and help? And there is definitely service involved in that. But what I'm talking about today is the day-to-day habit of being helpful. The daily habit of service. And the first thing that I want you to see in Jesus' life here is that if we're going to live a life of service, we must learn to attack the mundane. Now, I want to tell you, there is very little in life that is more mundane than what Jesus does here. 
literally washing dirt. And I'm trying to think of a good word here. Poop. Off the feet of the men that he had walked beside. Around Easter time, we, we always um, read devotionals that lead towards the Easter story. And my kids love it when I read um, out of the Jesus Storybook Bible. There's a particular story that comes from this, Jesus washing feet. And it talks about him, um, him washing their dirty, stanky feet. Right? And I don't think we have any idea how wretched their feet smell. I mean, the closest thing I could think to it is um, middle school boy after intense summer workout. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord today, right? Eli would work out for football and get in the car, and it was like, ugh, right? Um, in fact, there was one day when he threw his stuff in the back of my van, and I did not realize it was in the back of my van. And you know what it's like in summer? Have y'all been in summer here? Like, it's, uh, it's not cold. It's, like, hot. And you get back in the car, like, the next day, and you didn't realize it was in there. Anybody had that experience? There we go. And you're just like, what died in here, right? And it moves from being smelly and stinky to the only way to describe it is it stank, all right? It was bad. Now, I want you to think about, these guys did not get daily baths. That wasn't a normal part of their lives. They had walked on streets that did not have clean running Toyota Priuses on the road. What do you, what's the plural of a Prius? A Prii? Didn't have though, didn't have Toyota Prii running around, all right? Transportation in that day were mules, donkeys, livestock. And they leave a trail. And I don't mean like hoof prints in the sand, right? And these guys are walking with open-toed shoes down the dirty, dusty, grimy, stanky streets. And Jesus is sitting there ready to eat, and the smell would have been overwhelming. And the Savior of the world, the King of kings, says, let me take care of washing your feet. Now listen. Nobody likes washing feet on a normal day. Like if I were to ask in this place, I need a volunteer right now to come up here and wash my feet. All right. Now, some of you would raise your hands because you're in church and you want to look spiritual. All right. But if you actually think, man, I hope when I go to church today, that pastor is going to ask me to come on stage and wash his feet. We have a word for you. Anybody want to know what that is? Weird. All right. That's the word. Like that's not normal. The most mundane task you can imagine, the Savior of the world does. Now, you and I get asked for much less mundane tasks every day, but we somehow think that they're not worthy of our attention. Co-workers ask for help. Cars stalled on the side of the road. The middle of the night and a child cries. In fact, let me just tell you that parents, families, kids, teenagers, families is a wonderful place to pursue doing the mundane. Does anybody here have a task that you have to do at home that you actually despise doing? All right? Anybody want to share? What do you not like? Please don't say loving on my kids. Please don't say that, all right? What do you got? Trash. Eli has one task at home. It's emptying trash. There it is, all right? Emptying the dishwasher. Yeah, okay. Anybody else? 
Notice how the youth are all raising their hands like they are overwhelmingly responsible for all of the stuff that goes on at their house, right? Parents, what do you got? You got anything? Laundry. I have a particular part of laundry that I really dislike. Matching socks. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord today, right? Right? That's why Eli's giving commentary down here you don't need to give about our family, all right? We're going to have to talk about that, all right? So, but here's the thing. If you don't match the socks, they're not going to match them themselves. And by that, I mean not the socks. I'm talking about the kids, right? And so, it's just something you do. Now, it's easier to hear about service than it actually is to do. But here's the point from Jesus for us. There is no task that you will ever be asked to do that is beneath you. There is no task that you will ever be asked to do that is beneath you. And if you ever think, man, that, that, I just can't do that. That's too, that's below me. Then your attitude about service is wrong. Right in line with that is not only do we need to attack the mundane, the second thing we need to do is we need to be interruptible. Be interruptible. To be available. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls it being active in helpfulness. This idea that no matter what you're doing, if there are needs that are genuinely there and you can do it, you need to be willing to be interrupted to serve people. Now think about Jesus, all right? Remember what we read at the very beginning before the Passover festival? So this is a big deal. This is the biggest event and celebration that they had on a yearly basis. It reminded them that God had rescued them from the oppressive regime of the Egyptians. And it gave hope to them that were a part of an oppressive regime of the Romans that God was going to deliver them again. This was an important meal. This was Christmas. This was Thanksgiving. This was rolled into one. This idea that they were celebrating this holiday. And it says, Jesus, before the Passover, important time, knew his hour had come to depart from the world to the Father. Do you think there were other things on his mind? He's sitting down to the Passover meal. He's going to reinterpret it for them. He knows within 24 hours, within 24 hours, Jesus is dead. I think there were some things on his mind that were pressing. He knew these were the last few hours he was going to spend with the the disciples. This was it. This was the last little moment. My guess is he was ready to get in there to eat and begin to interpret this meal, to tell them all, to share this time, to spend these last sweet few moments with them before the next 24 hours that were going to be literally torture on his body, on his soul was about to happen. He wanted to spend this time with them and he gets there and he's ready to do that and nobody's washed the feet. He was willing to have his schedule interrupted for a moment to take care of the needs of the people around him. In the Russian church, there is a position there called the Pusiniki. They devote themselves to a life of prayer and they go into solitude but not isolation. So they will go into a room, but their priority, it is said, at any time is the neighbor's need outside. And so they will close the door but always leave the latch open. The question is, in your life, is the latch always open? Just as if you say in your life that anything is below you in service, you have misunderstood what Jesus has called us to do in service, if at any moment you have said that that need is not deserving of my time, then you need to reevaluate your understanding of service. Be interruptible. 
third thing is control the rudder. Control the rudder. You're like, there's not a boat in the story, Lyle. I don't know, Pastor, where you got that. All right. Is there a place in Scripture? Those of you, and I've got some biblical scholars out here. Is there a place in Scripture where a rudder is used to compare something we're supposed to control? Where is it? In James. What are we supposed to control, Miss Joan? Our tongue. Here's what I find interesting, okay? You think, where is that in the story? Scripture says over in James, here's James 3. You can write it down and go look at it later. It says, consider ships. Though they are large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how large a forest a small fire ignites and the tongue is a fire. One of the most interesting things about this passage to me is Jesus knew. It tells us right, right here. He knew who would betray him. And Jesus will make reference to it. Jesus will tell him to do what he's going to do. But in this moment, I'm sure that in the humanity of who Jesus is, he was thinking in his mind about Judas, let me tell you why you're making a mistake. Judas, why are you doing this to me? There is some hurtfulness there. Now, Jesus knew ultimately it was part of God's plan, so he's not going to stop it. But I'm sure he wanted to comfort. He wanted to talk. He wanted to help. In the next 24 hours, when he's taught, brought before Pilate, it tells us in Scripture that like a lamb led to slaughter, he didn't open his mouth. He didn't say whatever was there. I read a quote this week from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer that says, Often we combat our evil thoughts most effectively if we absolutely refuse to allow them to be expressed in words. And then he says this, which we'll talk about this in a minute in our culture. It must be a decisive rule of every Christian fellowship that each individual is prohibited from saying much that occurs to him in his mind. In other words, it ought to be part of our lives that we say, I'm not going to say everything I think. Now, let me just tell you, there are a lot of things I would change about our culture if I could. Amen? Apparently not. I would, all right? A lot of things I would change in our culture if I could. But I think perhaps the most divisive and debilitating part of our culture right now is that everybody gets to say whatever they want to say, whenever they want to say it, and they think they can be heard by it. And we no longer think about whether it should be said or how it should be said. You just get out there and say it. And today, I think if James was writing, he would talk about controlling the tongue and controlling the Facebook and controlling the Twitter. Controlling the Instagram, controlling the instant message, controlling the text. Because we got so many ways to say whatever's on our mind. I just gotta, I've got to get it off my chest. That's not always the wisest thing. And sometimes the way you serve people is not to tell them what you're really thinking. And you say, listen, you don't know how many times a day I do that. Well, good for you. Our culture needs that example. You see, we've developed this idea in America that the culture needs to know how much we know and why we think it. Two more things and then we're done. The way that you live a life of service, the fourth thing is to raise your claws. You think, I have no idea what that means. All right, I'm trying to give you things to remember here, so I'll tell you what it is in a second, and if it makes sense to you better that way, write it that way, but raise your claws, all right? And this goes back to something that happened last fall. So last fall, I was a part of this wedding that happened here at this church. Some of you may have heard about it. Ellie and Vincent got married. 
Okay, and so I was conducting the rehearsal. If you've ever been to wedding rehearsals, most of you, I guess, have not been to wedding rehearsals like I have been to wedding rehearsals, because when you do weddings, you go to a lot of wedding rehearsals. They can either be very helpful or they can be colossal waste of time. All right. And so we try to make them very helpful. And so we're all gathered around. We're waiting. Nobody's ever there on time. If you're supposed to be there at five, you know, you've got three bridesmaids in traffic on the way up 65 who decided it should only take them an hour to get here from Birmingham and you're just waiting. All right. And so it's always something like that. All right. Crystal's wedding. You got right. And so you're always thinking like that. And so we're sitting there and we're waiting and we're waiting and people are kind of here. Major parts are here. And um, there were three kids that played a prominent role in our kids read scripture and they were here, but also three kids. Um, two of them were mine. And so the story is not about mine. My two girls, my two were the flower girls. But as we're waiting for the other one to get here, the other kid that's involved, he walks in the back door with his dad in full bear costume. Because he was the ring bearer. And when his dad asked him to be the ring bearer, he asked if he could wear a bear costume. All right? Because he just heard bear. All right? And so, some of you are not going to make this connection. That's okay. I apologize. So, I'm thinking of us being the bearers of each other's burdens. Scripture says, I know it's a stretch, it's all right. It's what happens sometimes, you put yourself out there and it gets shot down. It's all right, I'm confident. I am, I know where I came from and whose I am and I'm confident in that, all right. But the idea is the Scripture does say this, whatever else you get, get this, okay. We need to be people that bear one another's burdens. We need to be people that when life is rough for people, we take it upon ourselves. Our tendency is to push people away when it gets tough. Or to give them lip service to, man, I really hope you do. I'll be praying for you. We need to be people that bear one another's burdens. And here's the thing. In a church setting, one, two, three people can't bear everybody's. A Sunday school teacher can't bear a whole Sunday school class. The, the, the really sensitive friend can't bear for all the friend group. We've got to share each other's burdens. Last one, and then we're done. By the way, Jesus was bearing his friends' burdens here. He would bear them to the cross where he died for them. Here's the last one. Live generously. If you want to attack the pride in your life, develop a habit of living generously. With your time, with your finances, with your abilities, a couple of years ago, we did a series of messages here uh, called about how to be rich. And the idea behind it is that there's this passage over in the New Testament in Timothy where Paul says, and instruct those who are rich in this world. And most of us in this room read that and go, whoop, glad he's not talking to me. But according to this world, you and I in this room are all very rich. In fact, if you make above the poverty line in America... You are in the top 3 to 5% worldwide. And if you make what most Americans and most people in our congregation make, you're in the top 1% worldwide. So when they're occupying Wall Street yelling about the 1%, you're it. And so are they, for the most part. And so when we have been given so much, the question is, how do we use it for the glory of God? We ought to be the most giving generation of Christians that has ever lived and the percentage of our giving is dropping every year 
I'm talking about nationwide. Percentages have been around that we give less today than we gave during the Great Depression, percentage-wise. It's not just money. You realize we have more time today than anybody's ever had? You go, no, well, that's not true. We've always had 24 hours a day, right? But do you realize that things that we do take a lot less time to do than they used to? And so we have time that's been given back to us. Do you know how long it used to take? I was thinking about this the other day. On Wednesday, I left my house. Kids went to school. Susan went to work at school. And everybody's off to school. At 7.30, I left my house. I drove to um, the Summit area. I drove to Green Hills area. I drove to the Baptist area downtown. I ate lunch there. And I got back to church by 12.15. Four hours, I drove for about 45 to 50 miles. And did multiple things along the way. And if you would have told somebody a hundred years ago that was possible, they would have said you were nuts. Even with Nashville traffic, we have more time today than we used to have. Food preparation, fast food restaurants, things that we do to eat, it's quicker today. And so the question is not, do you have as much time as anybody's ever had? The question is, what are you filling that time with to make you think you don't have enough time? We need to be generous with our time. Be generous with our talents. We need to be generous with our gifts. Let your attitude be the same as Christ Jesus, who precisely because he was in the very nature of God, did not consider his Godness, his God nature, to be something to be held on to, but instead gave it up. He became a servant, became one who willingly did whatever the master asked. For the sake of others. I was reading this week in our reading plan that we're going through the Bible together. Many of you are doing that reading through the Bible together. As we were reading the last, last week, really, through Exodus, and there was that part in Exodus that can get kind of bland if you're not careful, that's just all the laws listed out. And there was a set of laws that God just put, made me focus on, really, for the first time in a long time where it talked about the master and servant relationship. And if you look at that in the Old Testament and Exodus, that after seven years they had to be set free. But then it says in there that if after being set free, the servant would like to stay on and serve the master, he can choose to be a master's servant for life. And they would do this ritual where they would put something through the year and it would be an understanding that this was a bond servant, one that was indebted to life to him. And I just found it interesting that when Paul describes who he is in Christ, he uses the word apostle, one who is sent oftentimes, but he also uses the phrase, I am a bond servant of Christ. I am simply a servant who does what the master asks. Now my question to you is, how are you serving the Savior with the people around you this week? Let's pray together.